0: Welcome to the show where we interview our network of B2B SaaS experts. This is the Notion Capital Podcast, hosted by Paul Papadimitriou. Hi, and today I'm with Joss. Hi, Joss.
1: Hi, how are you doing?
0: Very good. Uh, we started this podcast uh, a few months ago with one of the founders of Notion Capital, and since then we've had a lot of the network of the Notion Capital experts, and we thought that it would be a good idea to come back to the basics and basically explain who is uh, a Notion Capital. They understand a bit of the philosophy. And for that, I'm very glad to be with you, Joss, because you are in a very key to Notion
1: Capital, right? Yeah. My name is Joss White. I'm a partner at Notion Capital. I describe myself as a entrepreneur turned investor or a recovering entrepreneur. Um, <laughs> I've founded or co-founded three businesses starting in the in the early 90s. So I, I've kind of lived through every era of the the internet's evolution. So I started life out in the early 90s buying and selling secondhand IBM equipment, which barely qualifies as tech. It's a very <laughs> tough mar- market with a very narrow margins. But um. It actually gave us an early view into a market that was emerging at the time in the early 90s, which was wide area networking, PC-based networking, this thing called the internet. So we noticed that people were moving away from big IBM mainframes with terminals hanging off them and more towards uh, having a PC on their desk and, and wide area networking and, and the internet. And this company called Cisco seemed to be at the forefront of that shift. So we changed the whole company's focus uh, to focus on Cisco. We became a very early supplier for Cisco in the UK and then across Europe. That company was called RBR Networks. We built that up into becoming Cisco's largest distributor in Europe and sold that business in 1998. So we had a successful exit. I then set up one of the UK's first ISPs, which was called Star, which we set up in 1996. Star was set up to... Uh, help businesses get set up with the internet because back then it was pretty complicated to do Um, so we try to provide some real hand-holding and help businesses to really exploit the full potential of the internet so we built up star pretty successfully then kind of out of star technology that we developed within star and then we brought the technology out to scale it up and to provide more focus for it was a um, internet level antivirus technology that we developed so we set up a separate company called message labs I co-founded MessageHouse with my brother in the year 2000. And um, MessageHouse was the first company in the world to move the process of antivirus and then anti-spam into the cloud. So instead of loading up software onto your own machine, you would just redirect your traffic to one of our data centers, we'd scrub it, we'd quarantine the bad stuff, we'd pass on the good stuff. And and in doing so, we could deploy a more data-driven approach to identifying malware. So we could look at things like the The reputation of the sender. We could look at the movement patterns within the email. We could look inside the email itself, and we could form an algorithm-based predictive score for each email. So we could actually identify new emails dynamically without needing an exact match. And that was a major breakthrough. Just when viruses were working out how to piggyback on email and becoming a much much bigger problem. So we're in the right place at the right time. I moved to the US, to, to New York in 2002 to run MessageApps um, expansion in the, in the US market. And we built the company up on a global scale pretty successfully and, and learned an awful lot along the way. But we got to 2008. And by that time, MessageApps had about 550 people. We had offices in 15 countries. We were scanning about 3 billion emails every day. And we had about 10 million users of our service and about $150 million of recurring revenue. So what we'd actually done is we'd built one of the largest SaaS businesses in the world. Uh, MessageApp started before the term SaaS even existed. We just thought it was a better way to address the virus problem. But we we built a, a really big SaaS business. We were gearing up for a big IPO in 2008. We were hoping to see our name up in lights and on the ticker. But obviously, the financial markets crashed in that year. But we we were kind of following a dual track process. And so we, we ended up selling to Symantec in 2008 for about $700 million. So we had a big exit. Uh, it was one of the largest SaaS exits at the time that there'd been. We were really proud of that, happy with that. MessageAs was obviously founded in the UK and our, our main competitor, Postini, was founded in Silicon Valley at, at exactly the same time as us. We both raised about the same amount of money and we built Messageabs up into a company about twice the size of Pistini. So it just shows that if you get it right and you execute well, you, European companies can absolutely compete with the best companies in, in Silicon Valley. So we were proud of that. And then um, I tried to figure out what I wanted to do. And uh, me and three other guys, so myself, uh, Stephen, Chris, and Ian, we were part of the founding team behind Messageabs. And we wanted to stay working together. We also had this strong belief that all software is going to move into the cloud, and that represented a really big opportunity. And we also felt we were one of the few teams in Europe that have really built and scaled a big cloud-based software business. So we felt the best way of combining all those things together would be to set up a VC, set up a venture capital firm, just focusing on SaaS, focusing on cloud-based software, uh, because that's a market that we really know and understand. So we thought that that would give us a an unfair advantage in the market for evaluating companies and supporting our companies. And hopefully, they could uh, learn from our experience. So um, that's what we did. Our first fund was just our own money. So, uh, we set up uh, 2010. And um, from that, we decided that you know, we, we gained in confidence that we could really make, we could be successful investors. And we had a differentiated story in the market, you know, being former entrepreneurs and real SaaS specialists. So We went out and raised a larger fund in 2012, which was about $120 million. And we're just closing our fund three, which will end up being about $150 million. So we now have about $300 million under management. We have uh, um, 12 people in our team, and we have about 35 companies in the portfolio from seed to series A onwards. And um, yeah, we we feel really good about our position in the market and and, uh, really enjoying being investors.
0: We'll get to Notion in a bit, but I want to backtrack a little bit because uh, you said you were uh, a founder member of RBR, uh, Star, and Message Lab. What was your role exactly in those companies?
1: In RBR, originally, uh, my brother and his original partner, they wanted someone to turn all their crazy ideas into some sort of plan uh, to um, (laughs) give them more of a brand and more of a marketing presence. My background is actually in advertising. So I actually did English literature at university, and then I went into advertising, copywriting. So... So yeah, my background is in marketing, really. So marketing brand product. So at, at each of the companies, I've been the CMO. And at Message Labs, I, I was the CMO. And then I, I also ran product. And then I ran the, the US uh, market once I moved out to the US. So I had a, a number of roles, but I guess kind of CMO is my, is my kind of functional background.
0: And just to be precise, you're now back in London, right?
1: Yes. Yeah. I actually, um, I lived in New York for 14 years. It this kind of oh, wow. a, a typical New I'm York story. I, I moved in 2002 and I literally thought, you know, I'd go out there, get things set up, you know, help to build the message apps brand and help to sort of transfer the message apps culture into the US organization. But yeah, just love New York, love the US, love the challenge of taking a European tech company into the US market. And um, yeah, I ended up spending almost 14 years in New York. I moved back to London about two months ago with my wife and my three kids. So we made the big move back. But yeah, it really caught quite, uh, quite recently.
0: The reason I'm asking that is because that gives us that gives you a very good perspective of these difference. you know a lot of people say always there's a big difference between the u s and Europe but before I get there, I picked up on something you said earlier, which is you know you built one of the biggest cloud startup in Europe, and uh, I guess that that came with peculiar challenges, and I know that notion capital invests with a focus on Europe as Europe changed, is it still? Very challenging and more challenging maybe than the u s to build a global business from here from the u k or from continental europe
1: yeah what's I your mean, view I, yeah it, I think it 's better, but I think there's still some disadvantages yeah that european based companies have europe's already always had really, really talented people, really, really good ideas, but it struggled because everything 's so fragmented and you 've got you know pockets of talent or pockets of people in different cities, and different countries. And, you know, we struggle to kind of bring it together. But I think what you're seeing now in Europe is, is emerging tech hubs where these things are coming together. So London is, is definitely the biggest tech hub in Europe and is really, really establishing itself as a, as a major tech hub on a, on a global scale. But you've also got Berlin, um, you've got Stockholm, um, you've got a lot happening across Scandinavia, actually. And then, you know, the second tier, you, certainly um, Paris. There's a lot of interesting things happening, Amsterdam, Malmö, Lisbon, Barcelona. So, you know, I think you've got the, the sort of the main European hubs of, of London, uh, Berlin and Stockholm, and then you've got a kind of a, a group of challenger hubs coming up. So I think the way that, you know, all the different components of a tech ecosystem are starting to come together within these hubs, and particularly in London, um, is a really encouraging trend. I think you've also got a very supportive government, certainly in the UK and in other European countries, the government recognises that tech is a real growth industry and that they want to support it. So the UK government have been very good with, you know, things like making it easier to move talent into the UK with entrepreneurs, visas, with with tax breaks for people investing in tech. They've introduced a number of initiatives, which I think has really helped the, the tech industry and there's similar things happening in other European countries. Um, and I think also an advantage that Europe has is we really get different cultures, we get different languages because you have to, right? You can't just sell to your own country so we're good at entering new markets so we should be good at entering new markets and understanding different cultures and and another interesting trend is that design wise the, the, the user interface of a, of a software application is becoming more and more important because um mm. you know we're all used to using now our, our our smartphones and using our iPads and other other devices and so the, the apps that we use in our daily lives have, a, have amazing design, amazing, very, very intuitive in the way that they work. And people now expect the same from business software. So there's more and more. Emphasis on design, and I think we're very good at design, and we're good at user experience in Europe, particularly in Scandinavia. You know, there's actually a, a genre now which is called Scandinavian design. It's very minimalist, Absolutely. very less is more. It, it lends itself to to a smaller screen like a, like a smartphone. So there's a, there's a few of the, the the advantages of of Europe, but you know we're still some way behind the US, but but hopefully closing the gap. Do
0: you think some of the challenges and learnings you had whilst building Message Lab into this global business starting from Europe, are they still applicable today, and are those lessons that you can apply and you can you can still think about when you' take your investment decisions a notion?
1: Yeah, I think so. yeah, I mean I, we we were good at hiring good people. So I think we had a strong culture. I think we we really appreciated the importance of hiring really, really talented people and Spending time to attract the right kind of people, retain the right kind of people. So I think that that's very, very important. I think we were good at building a strong brand and being, you know, being pretty confident with why we were different. You know, some of the kind of unique competitive advantages that we had, not being afraid to take on the big established competitors. You know, really trying to kind of punch above your weight. I think we entered the U.S. market very well. So we entered the U.S. market relatively early. We seeded the market with some early adopters from the U.S. market. Um, before we actually went into the market and established an office there. But we invested a lot into the U.S. market. We hired well there. And um, I think that that was an important part of our, you know, building a, a category leading company. You've got to get out and be competitive in the U.S. So, you know, we didn't get it right straight away, but we went through a real learning curve. But I think ultimately the U.S. market became our largest market and it made us a much stronger company overall as a, as a result of that so I think there's some of the some of the things that that we did well that we try and encourage our, our portfolio companies to think about
0: is it also how you choose companies? Of course, there's many factors involved, but do you look for people that have this kind of ambition? Because you just used the term, uh, punch above, off, you wait. We had in the last episode, Dan Blazer, one of your um, experts at Notion Capital, who, who you know, said that in the U.S., since it's very marketing-driven, you know, people have these very bold statements. And sometimes, Europeans, we can be more reserved about the way we sell things. So is that something that you, especially because you've lived for 14 years in, in New York, uh, is that something that inf- influences your way of thinking when you meet uh, startups you might invest in?
1: Yeah, I think, it, I think it definitely does. The way I look at a startup is I look at three kind of cornerstones. I look at the team, I look at the product, and I look at the market. I really want to feel a good level of conviction, a good level of confidence within each one of those areas. If I do, and then I go on to look at the actual traction that the business is, is having out in the market, and then the last part is actually wrapping the right kind of deal around around the uh you know around the fundraising around the opportunity but yeah within team product, and market i think that they're all really really important and and obviously for an an early stage business when you're looking at the team you're mainly looking at the founders so i want to see a founder who i think is going to be able to translate in different markets and particularly in the u.s i want to feel that they 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 are really really talented that they're able to, you know, to pitch their company effectively, that they're able to kind of fill the room with the way that they talk about their vision, and talk about their business, and that the skills and the talents that they have will be applicable in across different markets, particularly the US market. So I think a founder who I mean, there's a number of characteristics that we look for in a founder, but I think a founder that can fill the room, a founder that has that burning ambition in their eyes, that has that intelligence has the right balance between listening and learning and, and a strong conviction about what they're doing. You know, that certainly, uh, I make it quite a founder led decision, certainly when it comes to the team. And I'm imagining that founder sat in the US, sat in front of a big prospect in the US or sat in front of a big investor in the US. And I'm thinking, are they going to be credible? Are they going to be, are they going to impress those kinds of people? And I think that that's an important consideration for sure.
0: Is there a major difference, uh, since we're still on the topic, is there a major difference in how you build a company in Europe and how you build if you were actually based in the U.S.?
1: Yes. I mean, I think, I think one of the major differences is that in Europe, none of the European countries in themselves are big enough to really build very significant value that a, that a venture capital firm is really looking for when they, when they make an investment. So, you know, a, an exit in the multiple of hundreds of millions I think that a European company has to start to think at markets outside of their own country, outside of their own market, quite early on. Whereas in the US, a US-based startup could and 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 they do this regularly, they could build significant value. They could, you know, they could they could be a billion-dollar business without ever having to leave the US. So I think that a European startup needs to be good at Knowing when to enter new markets, knowing how to enter new markets, knowing how to prioritize new markets and turning that into a competitive advantage that, you know, U.S. companies for all their strengths are not so good at that because they don't have to be. So I think that that's definitely a difference, which I think is interesting. I also I I think that, you know, when it comes to design or when it comes to engineers or data science or salesmanship or all these skills, all these roles that you need in a business. I think there are tremendously talented people in Europe. I think there's just as much talent in percentage terms in Europe as there is in the US. I think what we're missing is the management layer, the leadership layer of people that have done it before or people that have done it multiple times that can kind of harness that talent, that can manage that talent, that can get it working well together, that can get it aligned and really drive the, the, the organization forwards. And a lot of that is just a function of time. You know, we haven't had as many success stories in Europe. So we don't have as many experienced people who have done it before who can then recycle that experience and those skills back into the ecosystem. So some of it is a function of time. I think some of it is, you know, maybe looking more widely into the market and bringing leaders, managers from the US into European companies, gaining from their experience. But I think that that's an important kind of area to think about as well.
0: Let's deep dive a little bit into your own philosophy when you invest, because you've invested in companies like Adbrain, Shuttle, uh, Trustev by our friend Pat Fallon and, and others. Uh, historically, because you started investing, now you said, a while ago, uh, has your philosophy changed, evolved? What What is different from how you would pick a company maybe five years ago and how you pick one today?
1: I don't think it's changed that much. You know, I think that I'm more, you know, I think the team product market approach has been sort of galvanized has been sort of crystallized over time. I think we we always knew that those three things are important, but I think the way that I approach it now very much with, you know, wanting to have a kind of tick in the box, wanting to have conviction around each of those three areas has probably evolved over time. I think that the importance of the founder, I I place more importance on 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 that than, than I did and and particularly the the founder's ability to be relevant to be successful in the U.S. because that's such an important part of it. So yeah, I think it's evolved rather than really sort of significantly changed. And then I think our kind of market that we focus on, we don't just talk about SaaS now. We, 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 we talk about investing. We like to invest in enterprise software, which is at the intersection of cloud and mobile and data. So they are three kind of mega trends in the world of technology Software in the cloud is generally SaaS, but there's also transactional cloud-based software as well. But software now needs to be designed so it works well across multiple devices. And software increasingly needs to use and leverage the value of data that's publicly available out there in the cloud to translate that into value, into actionable insights that businesses can use to make their business function more successfully. So we really like to see software developed at that intersection, which is really taking advantage of the three sort of biggest trends in the world of technology today.
0: You said that uh, you had been the chief marketing officer and that you have a past and expertise in marketing and branding. Is that something that you help companies you invest in with? Do you see that the companies, especially in Europe, understand that positioning and branding as a philosophy of the company and how you market yourself is this something you've seen evolve
1: one thing that's definitely changed is that there's a huge amount of noise out there there's a huge amount of content out there and at the same time our screens are just getting smaller and smaller the need to be concise to be punchy to be compelling is is greater than it than it ever was so my big thing is that i think a company needs to tell a story. It's really quite simple, but I think a company needs to tell a story. It needs to stand for something beyond just trying to make money. It needs to, you know, talk about its history, talk about why it exists, what its values are and talk about, you know, where it came from what it's trying to do in the world beyond just making money and why that's important, why that's exciting. A lot of it just distills down to that. It sounds very simple, but it's actually very hard to do, to tell a story which is compelling, which is crisp, which is concise, which gives you a sense of where the company came from, where the company is going, but what it stands for out there in the market and you know why you should be interested in that. And also, to better tell a story, to better describe what you're doing in a way that you know I could say to my mother in 30 seconds. So, you know, a company that can't explain to someone who's not in the tech world, very, very simply and clearly what it is that they do is always going to struggle. It really is about storytelling, but it's about within that having values, really standing for something, really, why are you doing this? I think increasingly people want to know more about the companies that they're buying from, not just where you're small or you're big, or you're making this much money or whatever, but they want to know But what do you stand for in the world? What are you actually trying to do outside of just making a profit? I think that that's an important kind of trend as well. So, you know, telling a story, telling a compelling story, cutting through the noise, that's for me is is the most important thing.
0: I fully agree with you, actually. Uh, That's why I said that uh, branding was almost like a kind of a philosophy. It boils down to culture, because like uh, you mentioned the term millennials, but I think it's not only millennials. It's anyone who does purchasing decisions nowadays. They they do not only buy a product, they buy into the products. They buy into what they stand for. So and I'll, I'll finish with that. So I guess that for you, company culture is something that matters to you when you look at companies you might invest in or the companies that are in your portfolio.
1: I like to see a strong brand within companies that we invest in or that we're thinking about investing in. You know, I think some of that can be fixed. What can't be fixed is the internal stuff though. You need to have a story in the first place. You need to say, this is where this company came from. This is how we're going to make our dent in the universe. This is what we really care about. You know, this is, this is why we're in this. This is why we're doing this. And that's, that history, that story needs to come from the founder. Needs to be, it needs to kind of really permeate through the organization. I think once you have that, Actually driving it out externally is, is the easy bit, but you need to have it there in the first place.
0: We're certainly running out of time. If people want to know more about you or reach out to you, what's the best way?
1: The Notion website is at notioncapital.com. I'm on Twitter as Joss, white. And then you can reach me over email at jwhite at notioncapital.com. I'm particularly interested in talking to any SaaS, cloud-based software founders or anyone in that ecosystem. You know, we're, we're big believers at developing relationships, at giving before we get.
0: Well, on that, Charles, thank you so much.
1: Great. Thank you, Paul.